0: Blog Talk Radio
1: You are listening to Help for HD Live, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at HelpForHD.org. To watch us in person, find Help For HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help For HD Live is going on air in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1.
2: Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to Help for HD Live. This show is made possible because of a grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals, HSG, and the Griffin Foundation. I'm your host, Lauren Holder. Today I'm sharing a recording with you of a live interview I did with the research coordinators of Prevent HD. While I was in Madison Wisconsin they're truly lovely people who are new to HD but they are big advocates of research being a partnership so I hope you enjoy the interview and for those in the US have a very happy Thanksgiving here we go hi guys I just want to introduce you to some people who are actually new to the HD community um, they are professionals but they're they're new to all of this and I um, Wanted to share with you um, kind of their perspective on the Huntington's community as being new and what they see and educating themselves. So I'm going to have them come on. We've got Nate and Tricia and Alicia, right? So they're all new to the HD community. And um, I am going to, let's start with you, Nate. Um, so, what are your thoughts now that you have? Been in the community for about a month and been involved with um, things in the community. What do you think?
0: I would just say that from my experience interacting with the research participants that we do, um, something that I learned was that, um, you know, Africans are really unique stories with the disease and just it's really insightful to gain a experience but also just recognize at the same time. The experience behind these stories is not uncommon. So, I really appreciate that um, the community is able to come together, um, able to do these kind of things, and that they're able to support one another with their shared experience. Um, Their experiences aren't new, it's been happening for a long time, something that's been very generational. So, I think it's really good to have these kind of outlets and to be part of it.
2: I'm going to have you kind of share your thoughts, too. So you've been doing it a little bit longer um, and had a little bit more experience with people. So, um,
3: Yeah, so most specifically to the HD community, I'm I'm pretty new, like Nate. I started um, with Dr. Paulson in um, July. But my previous work was uh, working with some of my previous work. I've been in research for about 15 years, and I was on the clinical side of the world um, for 15 years prior to that. So it helps give me a nice perspective of really watching the translational piece, and that's what I'm most interested in, is how can we help patients um, and ensuring that everything we do in research will ultimately end up benefiting the patient, right? Um, And my work with all of us uh, research programs, there's a lot of similarities in that for all of us, we were very interested in um, having maybe participate in research for the first time. Um, And giving your genetic information, that's a big deal, right? There's a lot of um, consequences and potential concerns around that, as there should be. Um, And then also ensuring that people who haven't necessarily participated in research before start to now, right? It's a a good introductory way. And a lot of those people are altruistic, which I feel like a fair amount of the Huntington's group is that way as well because they may not be directly affected. Maybe they are negative, but they live with someone that's positive or know someone that's positive. Um, And so they're really participating to advance the field. And again, being altruistic, knowing that it won't necessarily have direct benefit to me or to who's ever participating, but will have benefit, hopefully, to someone that they know or in their family. So that's a really important piece of research. And the other important piece of research um, that I think Huntington's patients and families do a good job of is really understanding why research is important, right? I grew up in a rural farm in rural Wisconsin. My family only ever went to the doctor because something was broken, right? And they didn't understand why when they presented to the doctor why they got the treatment that they did, right? They had no idea that there was trial and error, there was research that went on to ultimately get them that, that treatment. And so it was difficult for my family when I got into research to explain to them what it even is or what it what man, what what the manifestation is, right? And so I think that's the other important piece and I see this being done very well in the Huntington community is really explaining that piece. Like we can't advance those fields. We can't get better therapies, treatments, etc. without active participation. And to me that's extremely valuable and one thing that I really love
2: about the community. So let me ask you because you said two things that I want um, to go back on. So um, genetic information and um, you know, you talked about there being concerns and stuff. Why is that? Why are there concerns around genetic information, genetic research?
3: Yep, that's a great question. So, the first and foremost is we don't know. Like, we, there, the genetic field is growing by leaps and bounds currently. I don't think we even have a mere appreciation of what this ultimately will, will lead to in 25, 30 years from now. Um, but what we do know now is that, especially with uh, a disease such as Huntington, it can be very stigmatizing and as Dr. Paul, as I heard Dr. Paulson explain, like there are little pods or little groups of Huntington sporadically. Like if you're living in a small town, they know that the Smith's um, motor function they wouldn't use that word obviously, but they walk different, or they talk different, or you know, Grandma Smith is XYZ, right? And so that's how they identify, and that's the stigma around having a genetic disease, right? There are laws in place that protect uh, genetic information, um, but they're not 100%, so um, you know, life insurance companies potentially could get this information and then this potentially could put the patient themselves, or participants themselves in an awkward situation. Even if their genetic information isn't shared, if the life insurance company were to say, Well, have you ever had genetic testing? Where's your moral compass, right? You know, that you've been tested, you for Huntington's, let's say, you know that you're positive, but you're not showing any signs or symptoms. What, where are you in actually telling them that that's what it is, right? So there's all. Not only is it just about other people knowing, but it's about your your moral compass too, right? Like how much of that do you want to share? How much are you required to share? How much, you know? So there's a lot of very sensitive questions when it comes to genetics, Um, and I think as this evolves, we're definitely, and a lot of people want to keep the politics out of it, but I don't know that we can, because it 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 has the potential to lead to almost everything, right? So I think we're going to need to continue to grow and learn and put safety mechanisms in place. So that groups such as Huntington can continue to live fulfilled life without being stigmatized or, you know, put at some other under um, that they may not have availability to certain resources or, you know, certain care because of their diagnosis.
2: In specific to research, though, when we talk about these genetic um, concerns. I do want to point out, we're not talking about research information going to anybody with your name. So I don't want anybody to think that um, that when you do research that your information goes anywhere that it would be used. Um, When you come into a research study, your information is de-identified. So whenever somebody uses, I love to explain it with like a, a brain bank, right? So when somebody gets a brain You know for huntington's disease they could send that tissue out to anywhere right but it's de-identified they don't necessarily share whose it is Um, it's the same in research studies everything's de-identified and provided a number or code but there's nothing to correlate it back to that person like if somebody else wants to use that research and they do that in enroll as well right so We'll see studies popping up now and trials now that are using things that came from Enroll HD. Um, and that's because the information is de identified and, and nobody knows who participated. It's just that um, they were able to get that information from that study and say, oh, well, these um, things came out of that. It would be a good thing to put in this study or in this trial. So I just want to point that out um, that there's not this concern about your personal information getting out to somebody else, because when you come in for a study, it's you are de-identified. Um, and then I want to ask you to, because you are brand new, so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just like, I'm coming, I'm coming. <laughs> um, <laughs> so because I want to get a perspective, being that you're brand new, so okay. Why did you get involved in research in general?
3: Great question. So, uh, I'll, as I kind of mentioned before, it's definitely the translational piece. So, I spent about 15-ish years as a respiratory therapist um, and worked at pretty much all aspects of respiratory therapy. I started in a neonatal intensive care unit. I went to a PICU, which is a pediatric intensive care unit, and then went on to adult. Um, I had a pretty significant tragedy in my life, and I kind of stepped back and didn't know if I wanted to continue in medicine because it was really difficult. I had an unfortunate situation with my sister; she had a misdiagnosed with appendix and ended up dying. Oh my God! Um, and I thought, what am I? Why am I working in this field? You know, not only did it become very difficult to see people who were sick and dying because of, you know, absolutely, triggered a lot of stuff for me. yeah. But just kind of as a whole, like why are we even doing this if we can't save someone with a bad appendix? Like in my mind that was like the easiest thing to figure out. But it also made me appreciate the complexities of every illness that we deal with, whether it's a broken fingernail, a broken finger, or if it's cancer, right? There's there's always a level of complexity that I don't think everyone appreciates. And so that actually I decided that I needed time to heal, but I didn't want to leave medicine because I knew that this was the right place for me. So then I went into the sleep field um, I did sleep studies. My sleep is still chronically fragmented to this day <laughs> staying up 12 hours a night um, And but still had a definite interest in pulmonology, lung function. Um, so, and then also that translational piece. So then I got interested as I continued the deal, I was like, okay, so how does this inhaler that I'm giving my patients, how, how does this come? Where does it come from? How do we how do how do we know that patients who have obstructive sleep apnea actually exacerbates or makes worse their asthma and COVD? And why is that? Like what what's at the granular level what's happening? And so I was approached by pulmonologists at that time you know, because I would, I would ask those, a lot of those questions and she'd say, you know, I think you really need to get into research, you know, I could really use your skills and that's kind of how it evolved. And I became very interested in how it comes from basic science, you know, to, to a clinical trial and then actually to a patients. And so we did uh, a lot of control of breathing studies to understand, you know, how the breathing changes as it sleeps, how, we, how our breathing changes as we sleep, and it just kind of snowballed from there. Working on soft money as funding is, you tend to get bounced around a lot. Mm-hmm. And so, um, ultimately, eventually, that funding um, that she was supported under kind of went away and she kind of transitioned to something else. And so, I came to work for the Office of Clinical Trials here at UW, which kind of just expanded my work in research. I not only did pulmonary, but I did some ADRC studies, I did some nephrology studies, um, and still did some pulmonary studies, and then was approached when all of us came to say, hey, we need to get this huge research program off the ground, you know, we, we, we think you we have the skills to be able to build the infrastructure. And so then I went to work for all of us, and I spent the last four or five years doing that for all of us. And we ultimately were enrolling like 100 participants, we So, it was a huge research study. Like, Wisconsin was supposed to enroll like 35,000 people, which Mm. is a really big number for research. I mean, Dr. Paulson's studies are large in themselves. Like, having 1,500 people in predict, that's a really big number, right? A lot of research studies often will do 10, 20, maybe 30 participants. So, that's the other thing that I'm really interested in, really getting large numbers. And also, ensuring that the participants that we enroll are treated like our partners, right, Like we we can't do what we do without them, so that means there has to be a mutual exchange of respect, kindness, empathy, um, and a lot of times historically in research that's been forgotten, right, and a lot of people don't feel like they're they're just being used for the research, right? They only want me because I'm sick, or because I'm this, or because I'm that. Absolutely. And that's not not where we want to be. We want to be in a place where patients understand the importance of research, and they feel the importance of research. And what I mean by that is that they can feel that it's so important that when they offer, you know, their kindness, you know, their altruistic that we appreciate that and that we want that mutual exchange of information um, because we're learning but we want you to learn as well and we want to be supportive to you as a, a person right because we're granted when you come into research study you're just you become a number but there's still a person connected to that number right and that's the most important thing
2: well, and I have to say, um, with my short time here, I absolutely, I love what you just said, by the way, because that's huge for us, um, especially this subset of, you know, pre-symptomatic, pre-manifest HD. That's huge, because we want that. We want to feel like we matter and our voice matters and that we are part of it. Right. A partner, absolutely. Um, and I have to say that since I've been here, um, I absolutely feel like everybody here cares. Um, and it has been amazing, everybody has been so nice, and I've loved it. So thank you for that, um, because it really has made a difference for me to participate in something where I don't feel like a number. (laughs) So yeah, it's awesome. Um, We're gonna go to Alicia really quick. Okay, so Alicia is brand new to research in general, and you've been working here with them for four days, (laughs) she's like and I've already got a camera in my face um so in the last four days what do you like what what do you think about research like starting up in this and and getting involved
0: yeah so far
3: it's just been mostly training online but it's getting me like kind of excited to like start up and like when I started during the testing that was like (laughs)
2: <laughs> so Alicia actually sat in on some of my testing, and um, she got to see <laughs> she got to see all of the things that we did. Part of it is, you know, oldies but goodies. They're they're the things that um, are in every single study that we've seen, um, and there's new stuff, and it's really cool to see her learn and actually, um, you know, take in all of that information. And I'm sure at the same time, it's overwhelming. To, to start off and be like, oh my gosh, this is a lot of information I have to take in. And so, so Nate did something that I thought was really cool. Nate actually um, was the person with me uh, throughout my my testing. Um, poor thing, he had to take me to the MRI and um, kind of babysit me. so. <laughs> Nate, you said something when um, we were going through testing and that was that you did these tests yourself because you wanted to know what it, what your participants were going through, um, which is something I really appreciate. So can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, so um, just as part of the training, I'm um, gonna really emphasized emphasize for us is to practice first of being the participant. We wanna kinda of know what is going through your guys' minds when you're taking the test, some of the questions you may have, of the things that may be difficult for people in general. Um, More specifically when I made that comment I meant regarding the MRI, I wanted to be the pilot scan for that um, just because I wanted to do as much of the study as possible um, provided that I wouldn't be able to do the lumbar puncture just as a pilot. I just think in research it's really important to make sure that if you're going to be working with people like having them do certain tasks. Um, you should be willing to be able to do the same thing. I think that's really important. Just kind of having that conformity and again recognizing the person who is behind the people that you work with. So for me, especially in regards to testing, I was very happy to be able to be trained up um, doing it myself, getting some experience and now being able to administer it. I think it's given me a better gauge of what um, to expect from working a person.
2: And um, so how long have you been in research?
0: So my research experience, so with this lab, um, I, think it, I think it was mentioned earlier that I was only here for one month. I've actually been here for about three months. Oh, sorry. I so just one a little correction. Um, in the past, as an undergrad, I worked for about a year and a half in a lab that specialized in childhood anxiety. So I've done a lot of um, work with doing the EMG scans, some MRI experience, and then doing just some social stress test type of stuff um interacting with participants, very different um clinical population for sure, different age group. Um but I just really liked it and after that experience I was like, you know, I'm really interested in just finding new sub of people, something that maybe could take me a little bit out of what I'm used to. Um I had taken a lot a lot of classes that surrounded around the topics of depression and anxiety. So for me I kind of felt more at place there. But for me, I just really wanted to kind of just expand my knowledge, um, challenge myself in terms of learning. And I think it's been a really rewarding experience, because just every day is learning experience and becoming very open-minded to hear from people, and that's reflective, which has been very helpful, helpful for me in my growth.
2: Yeah, and it's, I, I love, um, like I said, I love that you participated before, and you actually acted as a participant. I also love that when I would say, oh, I'm a perfectionist, and then you would go, You know, that's uh, childhood anxiety (laughs) because it's so right. Like, that is absolutely where it comes from. Um, I've tried so hard not to be a perfectionist in my adult life, and it so does not happen. Um, So I very much appreciate you, and I very much appreciate all that you have done um, over the past few days in babysitting me and directing me where to go. Um, And it really has been an amazing experience. Um, Did you have any thoughts for the HD community, maybe when they come to studies, what would be helpful, what, um, you know, what you would like to see, because when you talk about a partnership, I mean, communication is a huge issue on that, right? Like, we have to be able to communicate everything honestly, we've got to be able to trust, and um, so, you know, how do we make sure that communication happens, that type of stuff?
3: Yeah, building trust is essential. Um, and I guess, first and foremost, I would say always ask questions. Don't be afraid to think you're asking a dumb question or uh, oh, I'm sure they hear this all the time. It doesn't matter, right? That's what we're here. We're here to ensure that everything that you're doing, you're comfortable with and you have the answers that you need to make an informed decision, right? And that's part of the consenting process, too. That's a, it's a fluid, ongoing process. Just because you sign up for a research study and sign a consent form doesn't necessarily mean that you can't say no or I'm uncomfortable. At any point, you can say, you know what, I really thought about this more and I'm really not feeling comfortable on it, and that's okay, that's okay. We all have, you know, feelings (laughs) and they change over time. Um, So I think that's a really important thing for people to understand is that consent is not a one and done. Um, it, it's an ongoing thing, so at any point you feel like you're not comfortable doing it, you just have to say the word and it's it. Um, research doesn't affect your clinical care, so any care that you get from your neurologist or whoever you see, it would not be at all impacted on, on what we do here with research. The other thing you mentioned communication. I think is huge. Um, I, I always want participants to make sure that they feel heard. Um, and feel like they know as much as I do about the study that they're participating in. So I want, I want them to know the risks. I want them to know, you know, I want them to feel comfortable in always asking questions or offering feedback because that's part of a partnership, right? Um, for us to be nimble and to be able to change the way we do things um, is really important. I also think it's important for participants to know that there's a lot of logistical uses in running research. um, And sometimes it's difficult to get everything perfect, right, You talk about perfection. Um, And so if something is not perfect, please tell us, right? Because it may just be something that we consider that we do normally all the time, but maybe maybe it's not the best thing, maybe it's not the best way. And we wanna be able to use every resource and tool that we have to be able to make it the most, I don't wanna say enjoyable because it, you know, there's always some apprehension surrounding research, so it may not initially feel enjoyable, and sometimes your first time participating, you know, there's a lot of what ifs and I'm not sure, and that's okay. It should be that way. Um, but just to be open and honest and, you know, don't hesitate
2: to offer feedback. Because it's important. And I, I want to point this out, too. So um, <laughs> you don't have to worry about about the question part. Like you were talking about, tell us if you have questions or whatever. Nate was nice enough to give me a notepad because I was like, okay, I have some things I want to write down about questions I have because I'm that person. Um, And he was very patient with me and um, got all of my questions answered. So don't be afraid to write things down. Don't be afraid um, to take them to somebody and say, um, you know, can you check on this for me? Um, You know, and don't be afraid to give feedback. you know one of the things that i was doing throughout my testing was oh well this is an old one or oh this is a new way of doing that that's really awesome that they do it that way it makes it much easier it's good to give that feedback it's also very important that even if we're perfectionists we are totally honest and vulnerable and share exactly how we've been doing because we have to establish a baseline to be able to track what's going on with us, to be able to make a difference. So if we constantly say, oh, I'm fine, oh, I'm at this level, oh, and we never report what's actually going on, then we're not gonna get anywhere, um, because it's all just, we obviously, like I'm the same way, I wanna function at the highest level possible, but if I don't, that's okay. That's not, because that's, it's not the honest truth, right? Like am I suffering from depression? Am I suffering from um, other issues? I need to be honest about that to establish a baseline so they can get the best research in order for us to get to clinical trials, um, you know, and get to where we need to be. So make sure when you come in you are honest um, because it is a partnership and they can't go forward with anything new if information is not provided to them. so, you know, it's just like you can't expect somebody to be mad at you or to be okay with you if you didn't share something. <laughs> um, you know, like if you made somebody mad and, and um, you don't tell them, like, how are they supposed to know? It's the same deal in, in research. You've got to be very honest if you're having problems, if you're struggling with something. Um, because uh, it's not just about movement. Right. So this is what we know in HD. It's not just about movement. It's cognitive. It's behavioral, and those things matter. Um, and we've got to be very honest. So I just want to thank you guys so much for taking the time to do an interview with me and also to do this research and really um, move forward the things and have that perspective of it's a partnership. That's, that's huge. So thank you so much. Lock talk radio.
1: Thank you for listening.